This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. Michael Fishbach to discuss his new book, The Movement in the Middle East, a history of the Arab-Israeli conflict over Palestine. Dr. Fishbach shows how the conflict split the American left beginning in the 1960s and how that conflict is spilling over into the political mainstream today. Dr. Fishbach, welcome back to the New Books Network. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, people who didn't have a chance to listen to your previous interview. Sure. Well, I, for nearly 28 years, I've been a professor of history at Randolph-Macon College in Central Virginia. I did my graduate training at Georgetown University in modern Middle Eastern history, a subfield in modern European history. And most of my professional writing until recent years focused uh, on property, land and property issues in the modern Middle East, mostly related to the Arab-Israeli conflict, that is, Palestinian refugee property losses in 1948, the land and property left behind by Palestinian refugees. I also looked at a similar issue of Jewish property claims against Arab countries for land and property left behind there. But in the past nine or so years, I've been focused on this very large project that took me in a very different direction, that is to focus on how the Arab-Israeli conflict factored into both the black freedom struggle in America in the 1960s, as well as how the American left grappled with the Arab-Israeli conflict. And in both cases, looking at the various splits, some of them quite deep in those forces uh, as they approached the question very differently. And both some in the black freedom struggle, for instance, civil rights leaders, supporting Israel, the black power movement, by contrast, largely supporting the Palestinians, and a similar process in the left, the new left, the old left, the anti-war movement, the women's movement, I mean, left broadly speaking, was bitterly divided on this issue, despite its unanimity on virtually all the other major issues of the day. It was conceived and researched as one huge project, but it was simply too large for my publisher, Stanford University Press, (laughs) And so it ended up, frankly, as, as two different books. Um, I'll, in retrospect, sometimes I wonder about separating them quite so rigidly, but that's how it turned out. So how does it build off of the book I interviewed you about last year, which was Black Power in Palestine, focusing sort of on that black freedom struggle you described? Well, the first major expressions of pro-Palestinian support, 
That is, most Americans solidly supported Israel. In fact, 95%, according to polls right after the 1967 war. And so the first time most Americans had heard of criticisms, particularly withering criticisms of Israel for having launched the war in 67, general Israeli policy, policy toward the Palestinians, came from black power radicals. And it was quickly picked up by particularly the new left, the youthful new left, and also by old left political parties. Now, by old left, I'm talking about left-wing parties from the early part of the 20th century, the Communist Party USA, later on Socialist Workers Party, the Socialist Party of America, other group, you know, Marxist and Trotsky, Leninist, Marxist, Leninist, Trotskyist, uh, other left-wing social democratic parties from much, much earlier in the 20th century. And so fairly quickly after 67, black radicals having paved the way, you saw within the white left a lively and sometimes vicious debate about what to do with Israel. Um, is it somehow exempt from our overall anti-imperialist critiques of big power involvement in, in the third world, or is it somehow exempt? And the fact that there was a high percentage of Jews in the left, both the old left, the new left, the anti-war movement, as well as on broader liberal society, only made these kind of conflicts worse. So this book follows on the heels of the first one in that the Black Power Movement was really the first to begin introducing this new dialogue about the Middle East that spoke of imperialism and, and, uh, and third world liberation, and then the white left kept up on it. So okay. that's how the two books are related. So uh, you sort of begin the book by looking at student groups. When did American student groups, you know, campus organizations and such, really begin paying attention to Israel and Palestine? And what was the effect on leftist youth groups? Well, there had been, certainly within the old left, and part of it, again, stems from the high percentage of Jews. I mean, theoretical debates among socialists, Marxists, and others over the so-called Jewish question and is Zionism an appropriate response, or is a working-class socialist revolution the response? Those go back a long time. Certainly, there were very big discussions in the 30s and the 40s. But as far as the period of the 1960s, there might have been occasional interest shown in it, but largely it was the, the June 1967 war that really precipitated things. Because that's when the question of Israel, the Arabs, the Palestinians really rocketed its way into America's consciousness, despite being busy with things like inner city black rebellions in the summer of 67, um, focusing on the space race, a war in Vietnam. This still got into the headlines, and that really forced, in some ways, student groups to begin grappling with how, do, how are we supposed to understand this? Our own country is escalating the war in Vietnam, using American planes to drop napalm on people of color in Southeast Asia, and here an American ally using American planes is dropping napalm on Arab peoples of color, and how are we supposed to understand that? Is it comparable? Should we oppose it? Uh, and so you found, even before the war broke out in the, in the tense months of, of mid and late May 1967, 
for instance, at, at University of California at Berkeley, competing demonstrations by Arab students supporting uh, the Arabs in what looked like a coming war, and later it was a war. And you had some uh, a youth group uh, associated with the Socialist Party USA arguing very much the opposite. Israel is a socialist state surrounded by totalitarian governments backed by the Soviet Union and is eminently worthy of our support. So even in the days prior to the June War, which started on June 5th, 1967, you saw some student groups on particularly politically oriented campuses like Berkeley already speaking out. But it largely on campuses was 1969 that you really saw an upswing in teach-ins and, and uh, you know, pro-Israeli, pro-Palestinian debates. Uh, because by that time, Israel's occupation was lasting into two years, occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. By that time, Palestinian guerrilla groups consolidating into the PLO were really in the global headlines. And so some of these campus uh, pro and anti activities actually descended into fistfights and the police were, were called in on, on at least one major occasion at Columbia. So that's really when the student uh, movement, both old left groups and new left groups, using the fora of campus protests, of teach-ins, things that were already going on about other issues, began using those same kinds of fora to uh, debate positions on the Middle East. Now, how did the old left react to the Israel-Palestine issue, and wh- and where do we see evolution in that? I mean, as you've alluded, those those discussions begin before June of 1967. Yes, very much so. The Communist Party USA and its big rivals, the Trotskyists in the Socialist Workers' Party, on the one hand, and Social Democrats in the Socialist Party of America, on the other hand. There was a bitter rivalry between the Stalinists and the Trotskyists, the Stalinists and the Social Democrats going way back. And there had been discussion on that. And I think it's fair to say that by and large, the old left was fairly hostile, openly hostile to Zionism. Now, the Holocaust, the establishment of Israel in 1948 changed some of that. But certainly there was a legacy of an inherent, at at best, a a suspicion of Zionism. So when the war happened, old left groups, the Socialist Workers' Party, immediately denounced Israel for having started the war. The Workers' World Party, which is another Marxist group that emerged out of the SWP, in fact, they carried out the only known demonstrations against Israel to actually take place during the six days of the war. The Socialists initially were following the um, Socialist International called on kind of both sides to, to exercise restraint. But the Communist Party USA almost immediately faced splits. The party leadership following the Soviet Party's line condemned Israel as the aggressor for having started the war. The party always said Israel exists and must maintain its existence. No one's talking about dismantling Israel, but Israel was the aggressor. And uh, there was a rebellion of sorts among Jewish, particularly Jewish comrades within the Communist Party, some of whom described themselves as pro-Israel, but non-Zionist. And um, the FBI, which had, by its claim, literally hundreds of informants, uh, fueled this kind of 
um, division within the party and in a document described it as a crisis of the first order of magnitude that was really um, ripping apart uh, the Communist Party. So the old left, by and large, was quite critical of Israel, and this is reflected in various journals that, that came out at the time, um, for instance, but National Guardian, for example. Um, but it wasn't unanimous. Certainly the Communist Party was split. And by 1970, the Socialist Party of America had drifted quite strongly into a pro-Israeli position, quite stridently so. So there was far from unanimity, and sometimes these disputes mirrored earlier disputes. I mean, it's not a surprise that the Communist Party came out strongly against Israel, despite the objection of its members, some of them, and that the Socialist Party of America would, would take the exact opposite position. I mean, that, that reflects the fact that those two groups had been at each other's throats for decades. So the old left was took various positions on it. Now, I wanted to spend a little more time on the socialist groups because I think there's a really interesting bifurcation that happens here. It seems that uh, the communist, explicitly sort of Marxist groups on the American left ultimately drift towards a pro-Palestinian position against the objection of some of their members, but that happens. Socialist groups go in a different trajectory. And, and beyond the fact that they were opposed to the Communist Party of the USA, just sort of intrinsically, what makes that happen? I think there were a couple factors beyond the one you just mentioned. A second one is the there was a strong level of support for Israel among Jewish comrades within the, well, they wouldn't want me calling them comrades, but party members in the Socialist Party. Not exclusively. Michael Harrington was an Irish-American Catholic, and he was strongly supportive of Israel. But like other left-wing parties, uh, there was a warm spot in some party members' hearts precisely because they were Jewish. I mean, in many ways, that was understandable, even though others, some of the most vociferous critics of Israel on the left, were themselves Jewish. Uh, That's one. Number two, the socialists had absorbed, in part, through a theoretician named Max Schachtman, Max Schachtman, uh, but others had, had absorbed a, a Cold War mentality about the Soviet Union. They were intrinsically opposed to the CP and to the Soviet Union, and their bitterness extended into a wider concern about, again, a kind of a Cold War concern, that anything the Soviets or the communists touched was innately part of a threat to not just, um, you know, America, but to socialists too. So they were quite uh, vociferous in saying that, well, it's the Soviet Union supporting the Arabs and the Soviet Union is a totalitarian government. It is not uh, encouraged democracy, let alone social democracy or democratic socialism, however you want to look at it. And indeed, so, so, hostile were the likes in so in the Socialist Party of uh, Carl Gershman, who at that time was a young man, um, Bayard Rustin. Uh, you could think of others. I, I could go down the list. A. Philip Randolph, um, Michael Harrington. So fearful of Soviet communism and its, its, its impact on democratic movements and on workers, you know, workers' movements, that that was another factor driving their, uh, into the arms of Israel. And the socialists said, look, Israel is a social democratic state. 
It has a strong workers' movement, and it is a bulwark against you know Soviet expansionism in the Middle East. So that was a, another important factor in explaining the socialists' uh, open embrace of Israel, and the fact that eventually many of them deserted the left and provided some of the nucleus of the neoconservative movement had something to do with this very process about the left's stance on Israel. And I would love to come back to that point a little bit towards the end, because I, I, I think you, I think that is really one of the more compelling arguments you see play out here. But I wanted to shift for a bit to look at peace activists, you know, sort of explicit pacifist types. In the wake of Vietnam, how do they approach the issue of Israel and Palestine? Because it seems to me that there's a shift that comes after about 1973. Yes. The, uh, so your question, you want to talk just about the pacifists for now. Is that, um, just for now. And then okay. sort of where their thinking goes after, after like the mid-70s, let's say. Sure. Um, religious pacifists like the Quakers, the American Friends Service Committee, actually began investigating the Middle East in 1968 and issued a report in 1970. There were efforts also in 1970 by the the same group, AFSC, working with another religious-oriented pacifist group called the Fellowship of Reconciliation to try to bring some speakers, some Israeli peaceniks to the United States that really blew up and there was a lot of controversy. Similarly, the Fellowship of Reconciliation tried to work with a Jewish pacifist group called the Jewish Peace Fellowship to bring over yet another kind of Israeli nonconformist and, and peacenik. Um, uh, and uh, the, two, the, the two men were Uri Avneri and Uri Davis. And, and both of those trips fell apart in, by late 1970. There was just too much controversy. The most outspoken religious pacifist who um, then emerged on the scene was the Jesuit priest Daniel Berrigan, who was famous for, among other things, you know, burning draft files at Catonsville, Maryland with homemade napalm. And he, after the October 1973 war, so you're right, this is really, Vietnam was essentially over by then, at least as far as American involvement. And he made this strident statement in the midst of the October 73 war, denouncing the Arabs, denouncing the Israelis. And in his speech, he kind of foretold what was to happen. He said, look, if I look like I'm attacking Israel more stridently than the Arab states, it's because of, you know, my own government's involved. And, and, and he listed several other things. And indeed, it all blew up. He was denounced as an anti-Semite. Uh, people who had been involved with him, Rabbi Balfour Brickman, for instance, in, in anti-war movements in the late 60s, uh, distanced themselves from Berrigan. So, you know, the religious pacifists certainly took, uh, took pains to, in their own way, address the issue, but they too faced controversy. Um, the secular pacifists, the main group involved in this kind of work similarly waited until the early 70s, and that was the War Resisters League, the nation's oldest uh, secular pacifist organization. And figures like uh, David McReynolds, who was also in the Socialist Party of America, um, people such as uh, Jim Peck were pushing uh, that, that they supported neither side. As, as pacifists, they said, we, we support neither side's military actions. We don't support American arms shipments to anybody in the Middle East. And finally, 
in part because of the recent, this new war, October 1973, and in part because of the Berrigan issue, the War Resisters League finally, in 1974, decided that we really need to make a statement about the Arab-Israeli conflict and war in the Middle East. And they finally got around to doing so, and they published it and distributed it widely. So really, the pacifist group's hesitance, hesitancy to, to and, and some of the backfiring that they got when they tried to address this uh, is one reason I think that left them determining what to do in the late 60s, and it took them until the early 70s to really say, okay, we are going to speak out on this issue. And I think the fact that the anti-war movement in general was now uh, dissipating gave them an opening to talk about things other than Vietnam, because that war, at least for America, had essentially come to an end. So that's the, the pacifists' approach within the anti-war movement. Um, it, it was a touchy subject, and by and large, progress was made in terms of issuing reports and statements. Uh, it, it waited until the early 70s. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So before sort of continuing on chronologically, I, I was curious, you mentioned they bring over some Israeli peaceniks as, um, as speakers in this period. And this is one of those awful two-part questions. To what extent are groups on the left interacting with um, Israelis in this process? And what, to what extent are they interacting with Palestinians, especially maybe Palestinians living in the United States? Well, those pacifist groups did. And a group that was, it actually originally emerged out of the Socialist Workers Party, but became very much associated with Noam Chomsky, a group called CONAM, Committee on New Alternatives in the Middle East. That emerged in 1970 and really ceased functioning not too long after that in 1974. And Conam and Chomsky personally were committed to bringing alternative voices into the United States. And that included the first speaker they brought was someone from a, a radically anti-Zionist Marxist Israeli group called the Israeli Socialist Organization, or better known as Matzpen. And they brought him over, uh, uh, Arie Bobel was his name. And, um, you know, Chomsky wanted to bring particularly those kinds of voices, Israeli, Jewish, not exclusively, but that's uh, many of the people they originally tried to get their voices to be heard in the United States to show the, the left, to show the anti-war movement that there was not a, a unified consensus in Israel, let alone among American Jews, about this subject. Um, there were other attempts, particularly among self-described Jewish radical groups, such as the Radical Zionist Alliance, uh, the Jewish Liberation Project, groups that saw themselves as youthful advocates of socialism even to some degree revolution, but they saw that as fully consistent with being Zionist, and they had much contact with 
Israel. In fact, the within Israel, there was a group that emerged called the Israeli New Left, Small Yisraeli Chadash, uh, or Siach. They went by the Hebrew acronym Siach that had a lot of cross-pollination, American Jewish new leftists who went to Israel, either visiting or to live there, or live there for a, a summer, and there was a lot of cross-fertilization there. As far as people on the anti-war movement or the left more broadly interacting with Palestinians and Arabs, most of that occurred through the presence of Arab students in the United States already. Um, there were trips. There indeed were trips. White leftists took to the Middle East. People met Arafat. They went to conferences. Um, but I think the most, the, the highest degree of interaction between uh, Arab students, for instance, and American students occurred on college campuses over here. Um, indeed, the Palestinians were aware of some uh, black and white American support, but I think by and large, there was more exchange of ideas and people going back and forth as far as Israeli peaceniks and Israeli leftists uh, than Palestinians from the Middle East traveling to the West uh, to address crowds. Uh, There were plenty of academics, professors, uh, students already here. So I think to the extent then that the left heard actual Palestinians speaking of them, themselves and their issues. It was people who were already here. Now, what's interesting in all of this, and you noted this at the beginning of this interview, is that there are a great many American Jews in in a, the really the spectrum of leftist groups in this period, and there are pretty stark divisions that start to form. What do those some of those disputes look like? And and do you, is there an organized place where you can see the fault line in American Jews? Is it generational? Is it just does it sort of depend on which group they might be affiliated with in that moment? You know that's a good question. And well, certainly older American Jews, particularly of the Holocaust generation, were aghast that um, a country that they considered a symbol of Jewish Renaissance. And as a safe haven, God forbid, in the case of a future Holocaust, would come under attack for a war that they saw as driven by self-defense, under attack by fellow Jews. I mean, that, and you had people, Seymour Martin, Lipset, Nathan Glazer, I mean, you know, older uh, Jewish liberals and socialists and anti-war people just excoriating these people being self-hating, um, some, you know, these attitudes stemmed from complexes they had with their parents and their upbringing and so on and so forth. Um, so certainly older people felt that way. But even among um, liberal and left-wing Jewish youth, there was quite a lot of division. It wasn't simply those raised in a more religious environment versus those in a more secular it, it seemed from my research and in interviewing many of these people and reading things they wrote that it ultimately was very personal. I mean, some people just immediately saw the connection between the Palestinian struggle, their own internationalist worldview, and it came to them very easily. Others had very agonizing discussions with themselves, their colleagues, their families. There didn't seem to be a common set of criteria from which I, as a researcher, could look and say, oh, well, this fits that mold. 
secular upbringing, non-Zionist upbringing, didn't go to Jewish summer camps, et cetera, et cetera. I couldn't find any commonalities there. It really seemed like it was a, a, a personal decision. But as one person said, it, you know, to be true to my left-wing convictions and my friends, I needed to go in an anti-Zionist direction. But I was very keenly aware that that was also driving me away from much of what I had been taught from many of my family members. And she said it was a very agonizing choice. So I couldn't find really a uniform set of criteria by which someone could say, yeah, that person was likely to be willing to uh, criticize Israel more than this person was. Interesting. Um, So after 1973, where do we start to see the discussions going among leftist groups? Because it seems like this 67 to 73 period, there's a great deal of conflict. These groups are sort of trying to internally sort out their own positions. Where do we start to see the discussions going as we get into the 1970s? Well, I am among those who think that the new left was, you know, the new left was was gone by, let's say, about 73. And the but that didn't mean the left ended. Um, And certainly one of the manifestations of this was an above ground movement that some have described as the new communist movement. When certain ex left ex new left people said that, um, you know, what we really need is a fairly ideologically uh, sophisticated and hierarchical, you know, vanguard Marxist-Leninist party that's going to lead a revolution. It can't just be sort of disparate actions carried out in a fit of emotion by the new left and the new left is gone. What we need in the 70s now to bring about a revolution is, is like I said, a vanguard party. And many of those, in fact, basically all of those with partial exception of one group, adopted fairly stridently pro-Palestinian attitudes, attacks on Israel. This was the period where guerrilla wars were going on in Africa and elsewhere, and they saw them as fully part and parcel of this attempt to overthrow an imperialist system uh, that undergirded capitalism. And and for them, they, they carried on that ideological battle, even though these groups' memberships were very, very small, and I know some would say it panders to stereotypes, but they were at each other's throats, and who was more Marxist than the other, and who supported Mao, and who supported Enver Hoxha in Albania, and, um, and they weren't, they didn't have a great weight in society. The left in general didn't. The other way that the left in the 70s, as the new left disappeared, carried on the tradition of particularly strongly pro-Palestinian attitudes were some of the underground groups that didn't go above ground at patient party building and and working in factories and organizing workers, but groups like the Weather Underground, who came out of uh, the Students for a Democratic Society, the main left-wing student group in the 60s, and in 1970, they went underground and said the way to continue the struggle to end the war in Vietnam and elsewhere uh, to, to change American society is to, as they call it, declare war on the United States government. And they went around setting off bombs and things. And while they didn't carry out bombings or other concrete actions in support of the Palestinians, they discussed it and wrote in uh, um, a manifesto they published in 1974 called Prairie Fire. They talked quite a bit about the Palestinian struggle. So uh, new left willingness to criticize 
Israel and support to Palestinians definitely continued into the 70s, particularly uh, with Marxist groups. But I hasten to add, at the same time, the social democratic left continued further and further into a pro-Israeli orbit, uh, but not exclusively so. The Socialist Party split in December 1972. Uh, what, What emerged was something called Social Democrats USA, which are still around technically, and they were pretty stridently pro-Israeli. And indeed, kind of, um, you start merging into neoconservative stuff. Some of those people uh, branched into neoconservatism. Another branch uh, that was very supportive of Israel is today what we call the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. And, but there was another social democratic group that in the 70s also it came out of the new left, but um, that was called the New American Movement. And they were pretty strongly actually pro-Palestinian. And this created some real problems when the New American Movement and the predecessor to the Democratic Socialists of America decided to merge. And that was the main sticking point when those two groups merged, which they eventually did in 1980, was how do we approach Israel and Palestine? So by the time the new left is over and the old left is still around, but not nearly as, as influential, uh, you still found these divisions going on uh, in the left um, right through the 1970s. Now, since you've brought up this sort of neoconservative turn we see in some of these social democratic groups, I was wondering if you could explain maybe for our listeners just a little bit what that means and then sort of what, what specific shape that took. You know, how did this experience of... Um, witnessing the Israel-Palestinian struggle lead to this sort of novel political worldview. Right. Neoconservatives, by and large, and they were very influential in this country in the 2000s, particularly the George W. Bush administration, the decision to invade Iraq and things like that, by and large were conservative in that they believed in the projection of American power, uh, including military power, but broke with traditional conservatives who sometimes had kind of a, an America first policy in that they, they had, in a sense, a liberal uh, underpinnings that we need to make good things happen in the world. We need to spread American democracy. We need to support uh, democratic forms of capitalism, for instance, and to project American power, not simply to preserve American interests, but also to better the world, uh, almost a Wilsonian vision. So neoconservatives had a fairly militant foreign policy. Uh, They embraced the Reagan administration's goals in the 1980s, particularly because they were incredibly hostile to the Soviet Union. And that goes back. Not all of them were members of the Socialist Party, but um, without exception, the neoconservatives believed in confronting the Soviet Union. They opposed the policy of detente under Henry Kissinger and President Nixon, uh, President Carter's attempts to negotiate with the Soviet Union. They were very hardline. But they, again, also had a kind of liberal flair, almost like what we used to see in Vietnam, in that, well, we're helping people. We're bringing democracy. We want to make it better for them. And so that, in a sense, let's call it, if not left-wing, at least liberal background, coinciding with the traditional anti-Soviet, anti-communist views of the socialists, on one level made it natural for them to, to shift into neoconservatism. Notably, 
there were many factors, notably two. One, the Social Democrats really by the early 70s had decided that they needed to function not electorally in terms of running candidates, but really work within the Democratic Party, within labor unions, okay? Basically become the left flank of the Democratic Party. And when the Democratic Party nominated George McGovern in 72, this avowed peacenik, he talked about military cuts, um, that was a huge problem for the Social Democrats as far as we're going to work within the Democratic Party, but this guy is doing exactly the opposite of what we think ought ought to happen. That was one factor that kind of pushed them finally out of uh, the, the Socialist Party and in many ways out of the Democratic Party and out of the left. The other factor, I think, was the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, um, the, the massive intervention of the Soviet Union in terms of sending supplies and things to the Arabs, and the Americans did the same to the Israelis, but that was an example they, to them of Soviet expansionism. And I think the third factor is that many, not all by any means, but many of the early leading lights in the neoconservative movement were also Jewish. I mean, Norman Podhoretz, sort of the, one of the godfathers, along with Irving Kristol, um, of the neoconservative movement, openly conceded that, that many of them were Jewish and were fed up with the hostile treatment of Israel on the left. Uh, they saw Israel, as I said earlier, as a, as a bastion of of progress against reactionary Arabs supported by Soviet totalitarianism, and that helped push them further away from the left. So I think there were a couple factors that explain the growth of neoconservatism, and uh, not all of it, but much of it was rooted, in fact, in um, their disgust at, at the left's over what they perceived as the left's overall hostility toward Israel in the in the late sixties. So you end the book with a group, with an anecdote about this group that you just mentioned a few minutes ago, the Democratic Socialists of America. Fast forward to this moment in 2016 when DSA is undergoing its own tensions over Israel and Palestine. And I was wondering, maybe set up that anecdote for the listener, but also what's the long-term effect of this split over Israel and Palestine on the American left? How are we seeing it play out today? Mm-hmm. Well, the anecdote was that there was a one of the... Um, Again, when the Socialist Party of America split in 1972, uh, the the majority continued on with the name Social Democrats USA. There was a second split that ended up under David McReynolds forming a new party called uh, the Socialist Party USA. And there was a third faction that called itself with Michael Harrington and Irving Howe that called itself the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee. That's the one that eventually merged with this other socialist group that I mentioned called the New American Movement, and they had quite a disagreement about how this unified party was going to deal with the Middle East. They had this long, drawn-out set of negotiations. And in 1980, they did merge, and that became the DSA, Democratic Socialists uh, of America. And a young member in the book, the, the anecdote you mentioned, a young member at the time, Uh, of the DSA had been one of the vociferous opponents of merging the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee with the New American Movement because he said the New American Movement, NAM's position is much too pro-Palestinian. That fellow later ended up uh, moving to Israel, living most of his life in Israel, and then in Britain. And 
he rejoined um, and and maybe the ascendance in American politics of Bernie Sanders had maybe it had something to do with it. He rejoined or or let's say joined the DSA, the unified DSA um, in 2016 and resigned within a year out of anger because the DSA voted to uh, on a platform that was um, fairly strongly pro-Palestinian. And he said, this is not what the left, this is not socialists should support Israel. Um, and it was, I think, a personal defeat to him, particularly because he had been among those in the early days saying that, you know, we need to be solidly pro-Israeli. But what it meant by 2017, by the present day, is that the DSA has aligned itself pretty firmly with the Palestinian. Um, most remaining social democratic groups have. That is, in our day and age, the the left, what I would call sort of the, the true left, from the Marxist left to the democratic socialist left, is fairly unanimous now. If there were debates in the 60s, those are basically gone. Um, we see solidly pro-Palestinian positions. Now, in the wider world, let's say not actual left, but liberals to progressives, this still very much... Uh, a live issue today. And that's where the DSA's inroads into the Democratic Party come into play. Not just the actual DSA members like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or the Palestinian-American Rashida Tlaib, but even people who aren't in the DSA like Bernie Sanders. The influence of socialists within the Democratic Party uh, mirrors the fact that large chunks, particularly of the youthful rank and file of the Democratic Party, not, not act socialists, just regular Democratic Party, um, similarly, by opinion polls, have shown themselves to be much more sympathetic to Palestinians and to Israel. And so this is presenting the current Democratic Party leadership with a real problem um, that whether you're talking about donors or whether you're talking about electoral support, that the fact that the traditionally democratic, uh, solidly pro-Israeli Democratic Party and its party bosses are facing a kind of youthful revolt on a number of levels, not just those who support Israel, Palestine versus Israel, but on how the people within the party view capitalism, how they view socialism, that once again, like in the 60s, we see the Democratic Party, which I'm not calling left wing, but let's say the part, the Democrats, wider liberal and progressives, once again, like in the 60s, becoming very bitterly divided about Israel-Palestine in the midst of divisions that they're suffering anyway. And as they go into the November 2020 elections, this lack of unity over Israel-Palestine is only going to add to the fractiousness of the party over other questions, like I said, of socialism versus capitalism and Bernie versus others. And it can, unless they somehow figure out how to deal with this, it's going to lead to even further problems for them. And I think, um, I think that's pretty clear. And I might add that worsening progressives who support Israel strongly, but are still consider themselves progressives, worsening their troubles is the fact that the presidency of Donald Trump that many, uh, all progressives are are working to defeat Trump and even the pro-Israeli progressives are working to defeat Trump. Yet, ironically, Trump has been the most stridently pro-Israeli president we've seen. 
in terms of actual decisions he's made. So supporting Israel, ironically, can be viewed as a default support for President Trump's policies, but at the same time, these activists don't want Trump reelected. So this, again, the question of Israel-Palestine is still bedeviling, if not the actual left in America today, which is pretty small, it is still bedeviling the wider progressive society. How do we fit this particular conflict into our overall worldview about American power, about uh, imperialism, uh, about justice, and, and so on and so forth? And I think it's, it's, it, it gets less coverage than the histrionics in the Democratic Party over capitalism versus socialism, you know, Bloomberg versus Sanders. But it's definitely there. It's not reported as much, but it's, it's another real source of problem for the Democrats. Now, I have just one more question for you. And this, I know that this project has been long in the making and involved a tremendous amount of research. What are you thinking of working on now? Well, the honest answer is, I don't know. Um, I remember once in between projects striking out in a certain direction and, and someone who I think had a lot of wisdom said, you know, projects will find you. You can't really actively look for them. Something will happen and it'll grab you. And in that case, it was this, this very subject, the, the 60s and the Arab-Israeli conflict in America. So right now, I think I'm just kind of giving great wide berth to the muses and waiting for them to strike me with some new idea. Undoubtedly, it will deal with the Arab-Israeli conflict. That's, that's really is my bailiwick. But I, I doubt it will involve America in the 60s again. But um, beyond that general issue of Israel and the Palestinians, at this point, I honestly couldn't say. So that's my honest answer to your question. Well, I'll look forward to seeing where it takes you. Uh, thank you again for coming on the program. Zeb, it's been my pleasure as always, and I hope to talk to you again soon.